Joshua chapter 10. So the book of Joshua, Old Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. That's not how the Old Testament starts. Anyway, Joshua chapter 10. Um, this is how to deal with kings part two. You know, and the other sermons before this was um, how to deal with liars. I don't know if you keep up with the sermon titles, but we dealt with the Gibeonites. And then we have a problem with these uh, kings. And so we have this um, uh, group of kings who have um, conspired together to come together to fight against uh, Gibeah, who's a, a major city that's, um, through deception, come in the covenant with Israel. And um, Israel's come to their aid and has defeated all five of these Amorite kings. And beginning in verse um, 16 today, we're going to see that they're, these kings, how they're dealt with. And so let's go to the Lord of the Word before we go to um, the Lord's Word. Father God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it's without error, that you, by your Spirit, show us the truth that's there. Um, and your Word is truth. So give me this. Um, unction, it's anointing uh, that you would preach your word um, to us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Joshua chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. I'm going to read through verse 28. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not, say, do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua and in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus Yahweh will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded... And they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did, as he, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. The word of the Lord. 
So we see again the, the hanging of these five kings on the, on the trees as he had done to the king of Ai. And, um, and we'll look at that in just a moment too about what this is about. But the first thing I think we need to see as we, as we look at this is, is really um, in verse, uh, verses 24 and 25. So let's look at those particular verses again. Um, as he says, And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war, the warriors who had gone out with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came, they put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus, like this, the same way that we're doing this thing, just like this, the Lord, Yahweh, will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Yahweh will do this thing that we're now doing. Feet on their necks. That's what the Lord is going to do. And so what we see, and what Joshua is telling them, what God is again reminding them of, is what we read in Exodus 15.3. And Exodus 15.3 says this, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. You know, the Lord is the translation of the word Yahweh. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. So our God's a warrior. And we can lose that sometimes. That he's a warrior. And we actually, in Christ, we talk about, in theology, the three offices of Christ. Ryan can tell you this. The three offices of Christ are prophet, priest, and king. It's a story behind why I know he knows that. So, Prophet, priest, and king. He's our prophet. He tells us things from God. He's our priest. He speaks to God on our behalf. He offers himself as a sacrifice. But as king is what we're going to look at particularly right now. Because the king fights for and defeats all of his and our enemies. He represents his people. So the larger catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith answers the question, how is Christ our king in this way? It says, by calling out of the world a people to himself. So this is how he acts as a king. Calls out of the world a people to himself. By giving laws and by bestowing grace to the elect. Rewarding their obedience, correcting their sin, preserving and supporting them under temptations, restraining and overcoming their enemies. Powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good. And also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. So this is how Christ acts as our king. And then in Psalm 110 verse 1. As we think about this idea he's saying placing their feet on their necks. That that he has the warriors, the chiefs of the warriors, place their feet on their necks. Psalm 110 is the most um, frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's the Lord said to my Lord, um, which is Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. In other words, you're going to sit on a throne, a victorious throne, and where are your feet going to be? Well, throne had a footstool. You would sit on the, you'd put your feet on the, the footstool. And your enemies are going to be your footstool. Your feet are going to rest on the necks of your enemies. And that Yahweh is the one under whose feet 
his enemies will sit. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that God gives us the victory. And so we had to put this together. You know, God is a warrior. We have the New Testament church now, and here we are. You know, we're the people of God. We have a different, sort of a different type of mission in the Old Testament. The, the nation of Israel was to go forth, um, destroying the evil people of the land of Canaan, and whose God had for, for um, decades and centuries overlooked their sin until their, their evil had, and uncleanness had gotten so bad that they needed to be judged. And God uses the Old Testament church as the tip of the spear to go in and um, produce the vengeance of God, to bring about the judgment of God on these people, and then to plant the kingdom of God here on earth in this way, so that if it were possible for a human king to lead this human um, nation of, of Israel, um, then all of the world would come to the nation. That doesn't happen because of the sin of man, so that God's ultimate plan is with the church, as we see today, where God goes out and he's now converting the enemies of God, many of them. Romans, so it says God gives us this victory. Romans 8, 37 says we are more than conquerors. So to keep these things in mind, if God is fighting for us and we're victors and we're more than conquerors, and then in Ephesians 6, 13, famous passage, we're told to take up this whole armor of God so that we're told because our battle is not against flesh and blood but against spiritual problems. So if there's spiritual forces that are attacking us and we're putting on physical armor, it's no good. It's like, what's that? Showing up to a gunfight with a knife. You know, it's, just, it's not going to end well for you. So if there's spiritual forces that are attacking us, then we have to have spiritual armor. And we're given it. And I think sometimes we focus so much on it's a shield, it's a sword, it's a helmet. We forget what the things are that are being compared to those things. So I'm just going to read what those things are. Because we're told if we'll keep the armor of God, then we'll be able to withstand in the evil day. And we live in evil days. So without spiritual armor, you're not going to be able to stand. And having done all the stand firm, and the armor is truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer and supplication. That's our power. That's our armor. So we have to ask this question, why is the church so weak today? Why is the church so weak today? And I believe it's because we don't wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Um, the biblical illiteracy of Christians. And, you know, you may be sitting there and you're like, I know the Word of God. I'll wield the Word of God. Good, keep it up, let's do it. I'm talking in general, and I'm speaking even specifically to us, because we too must all think, is it me? How could I do better? And we can all do better, we can all do more. But if you don't have the Word of God, and you're biblically illiterate, and, or if you don't believe in the Bible, then it doesn't matter what you know about the Bible, if you don't put it into practice. But the denial of the power of the Word of God is evidenced in a few ways. One is our lack of reading and memorizing it. We should be, the Bible calls it, meditating upon the Word of God. And a good way to meditate upon is to 
Uh, well, one thing you do is just read a small portion. And, just, and maybe read it every day. Read a, read a chapter. Read Romans 8 every day for a couple months. Just slowly think about it. Or try to memorize some portion of Scripture. And that's meditating upon it. So it, it gets to be internalized in a different way. Um, the denial of the power of the Word of God can be evidenced by our lack of um, attentiveness to the Word of God preached. It's difficult to sit out there. You know, especially if you've got a boring preacher, you know. And maybe you've, I've, I've, when I go to somewhere and I listen to somebody preach and I start to doze off, I remind myself, wait a minute, I really am interested in what this guy's saying. I really think this is great, and yet I'm still dozing off. So I don't necessarily judge your wooziness as a um, judgment upon my preaching. I remember that it's, it can be difficult. So, you know, fight for it. The, the hearing of the Word of God is an act of worship. And Dr. Kick would take us to chapel at seminary, and he said, you know, he says, guys, I, I teach preaching. He said, you don't think it's hard for me to sit in a sermon and not critique it the whole way through? He said, it's my job is to critique and teach preachers. He said, I just tell myself, I'm going to get a blessing. I'm going to get a blessing. He said, granted, sometimes you had to fight hard for that other times, but if the Word of God is even at least read, there's blessing in it. So you seek and wrestle for the blessing that's in the preached Word of God. And if you are not here, you ain't getting it. It is necessary to sit under the preached Word of God to continue to grow deeply as a Christian. Our lack of understanding the need to consistently be in the assembly of the saints on Sunday morning and to worship and to sit under the word preached is an indication that we are denying the power of the word of God. Don't let anything get in the way of this. Sometimes it does. Sometimes I go on vacation. I try to go to church when I go on vacation. When Rick preaches, don't let it be the three people. Well, it's families here, so it'll be at least five or six. But don't leave because I'm not here. I mean, that's, that's a bad indication. Um, there are things that come up. We need to try to eradicate those as much as possible. Um, and I don't say this because it helps me. I mean, I have to admit, I'd much rather preach to 100 people than, than two people. But, you know, woe be unto me if I don't preach with the same fervency to whatever numbers there are. So it's not about numbers. It's about the word of God's giving me a burden to preach and I'm supposed to preach. And that's what we do as believers. You know, and if, if there's a problem with my preaching, let's address it. Because I don't want to be a, a, a stumbling block. But Jesus says, I'll stand at the door and knock. You let me in, I'll eat and drink with you. But you need to be in the worship services of God. You just you need to be in the worship services of God. Why is it that typically the largest churches and what modern families are looking for in a church are the best bands? And by best bands, I mean a church that's singing in your worship style. I mean, some people go because they want to hear that rock and roll. Some people go because they want to hear that Southern gospel. Some people want to make sure it's only from a hymn book. Some people want to make sure, you know, whatever it is. We're all judgmental when it comes to music. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but 
John Frame has said, sometimes we have to get used to singing music that we don't necessarily like. It's the content that's important. And it is that we sing it because this is the kind of music that we, you know, we're not going to sing. If we don't sing a particular style of music, it's either for one reason or another. But like instrumentalists, we have a wonderful pianist, a wonderful guitarist. If we had a wonderful violinist, we'd have a violin up here too. Okay, so um, we worship the Lord with the gifts that we've been given um, in the way that, that we believe he's told us to worship him. But typically, largest churches and what modern families are looking for is the best children's ministry. How often we hear that? You know, I had one family told me a long, long time ago that their child picked where they were going to go to church. <laughs> we, we missed it. Fathers, husbands, you're the spiritual head of your family. Lead. Lead. It's a judgment on a nation and a church that doesn't have the men leading their families properly. Lead. Wives, you have men that won't lead. Don't yank it out of their hands. Make sure your family's in church. Make sure you follow the Lord as best you can. Prayerfully and lovingly doing all you can to encourage your husband to lead. And mourning the fact that they don't. Um, It's a difficult thing. But the Lord is in control of all these things. And just because some people abuse certain things doesn't mean we aren't supposed to do things in the proper way. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Um, These things are necessary and good for the right ordering of the church and for society. But a lot of people just, you know, children's ministry. I want to know what you got. And we're going to talk about that in a bit too. You know, or just, you know, the best worship services. Um, and it's, it, it, it has to do with the fact that we live in a very consumeristic entertainment-based culture. Um, it's all about me. And whenever you have somebody leave the church, people leave it. I don't even like to ask people why they left because I don't think anybody ever tells you the truth. You know, they're either trying to be too kind or they're trying to be too mean. But they're never going to tell you it's because of my personal sin. I mean, that's just not going to come out. And it may not be that, I mean, unless somebody's moved or something like this. But one of the things you'll hear sometimes is, I'm just not being fed. And it's like, I don't know, man. If, if, if there's one thing we do in this church is feed people. And you may not be lovingly enough. It may not be with enough whatever but there's food and we try to give it to people but if you ever have that feeling that you're not being fed it's because you are consuming things where's the you should be serving you should be working you should be you know yeah you're you're consuming you're learning but you have to figure out what are your gifts what are your talents how do I serve and it doesn't have to be within the church you be outside the church as the church but you have to get out of this consumer mentality. It, it needs, what I've tried to get in the habit of telling people is when they're looking for a church. It's not, you know, what do I tell somebody? Well, look for a church that's got a good children's ministry. I care less about children's ministry as opposed to other things. You know, make sure they've got the right kind of music you like. Oh, my goodness. I would never tell anybody. My thing is, are they preaching the word of God? Is the word of God being open? Ask them if they believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. Write it down. Remember that phrase. Google it. Find out what it means. Because it means they believe the words of God are the words of God. You go by it. You live it. You love it. This is it. 
Churches that don't believe that are out there. People go to churches and there's so many reasons they give you for why you don't believe the word of God is the word of God. And it all sounds good. It all sounds reasonable. But Satan comes as an angel of light and, the, and the, the beast comes and he will deceive even the elect if that's possible with great miracles. So you've got to watch signs and wonders. I mean, we saw in Egypt, Moses producing signs and wonders and the magicians were coming along and reproducing most of those. You can't go by that. But we're consumeristic and we're entertainment driven. You're not going to watch a show if it doesn't do something for you. You're not going to... You know, you got to, you know, why do you go to football games? Be entertained. You know, why do you watch TV shows? Be entertained. Sometimes it's to be educated. I'll tell you what, from what I hear, if you're not entertaining the children in some way in these classes, it can be difficult to get them to learn. But if you have good learners, they're not in it for the entertainment value. They're in it for the learning value. And so that's what we have to kind of be careful about as Christians. Am I seeking to be entertained? Am I seeking to be able to get a good feeling? You know, and then another indication of that is saying things like, man, God really showed up today. I got a word for you. God's always here. Every single Sunday, God shows up. Every single Sunday. The question is, were you here? That's the question. And then if you're here, are you really present? Are you really here? Are you really engaging? Are you really allowing the Word of God to speak to you individually? And I don't know what God's going to do today. It may be something that God does that's absolutely remarkable. And if you're not here, you're going to miss it. I don't know what God's going to do next week. I hate not being here. Well, I'm going to be here when Rick preaches. I get to critique a sermon. I will fight for a blessing. And I doubt I have to fight as hard as you guys are now for it. But it's, you long to be there. One of the things I look forward to in Haiti, it's like the church. Oh, my goodness, the church in Haiti is just, they're amazing. And we don't get that because we got too much other stuff. So, you know, it's good to go and see. We have advantages they don't have. They have advantages we don't have. It's, it's good, though, to be among people who recognize the goodness of God. So we, have, we really have to say, where are the men of God? Where are the churches of God? you got to find a church that you... So somebody says, what, what do I look for? And I say, look for one that's preaching the Word of God, that believes the Word of God, and one where you can use your gifts. One where you can go in and you can make a difference. One that you can get in there and you can be iron sharpens iron. You can be living stones being fitted together in ways that aren't pleasant at times. That you're willing to be chipped away at, smoothed over, your sin confessed, your sin found out, your, your grace extended, mercy given, and you walk forward in newness of life and change lives, and then that's what you want to see. And then how do you, what, what can I do? How can I help? How do I serve? How do I, you know, then there's things you can do. And I imagine no matter how large the church, you can probably find ways to do that too. But you want churches that are proclaiming the power of God by the Spirit of God and from the Word of God. It, it's very important that that's what we're doing. And the most important thing for our children is that they would know Christ. The, the most important thing for our children is to make sure that they are actually in Christ. You are either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. And if you're outside of Christ, there is no hope. If you're outside of Christ, you are lost. And we have to know this. And we had to believe this. So that first we do is, what about me? Am I in Christ? 
Am I lost? Am I a believer? Do I really know these things? Does Christ know me? Do I know Him? Make sure that you know that you're in Christ. But you have to make sure and then demonstrate to our children and we have to demonstrate to our grandchildren the importance that we place on this. You cannot make them get it. You, you cannot force faith into a person. But you can model it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And you can be a sweet aroma of God. And God does tend to work through families. And there's great hope in that. But prayer and evangelism of our children is important. But the most important thing is you demonstrating that it matters to you. Even if you're in church and you're not paying attention, they see that. You're in church and you're just complaining about church, they hear that. You don't go, they see it. You don't listen, they know it. You can't lie, your kids belong. They get it. And it's good to be able to be truthful and live a life of truth in front of your children. But you need to read the Bible with them. Parents, read the Bible with your children. Every day. I remember going to my grandparents' house and they were reading the Bible. And they, I knew they did it when I weren't there, when I wasn't there, when we weren't there. Um, because they would be like, I remember, and I've told this before, I remember um, they were reading from Leviticus because that's just where they were. And it was about, don't touch a dead body or you'll be unclean. And I remember thinking, I won't have a problem there. And then it was something about running issues. You know, like running issues. It's like, a, 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 what's a running issue? <laughs> you, know, is that, you know, somebody just can't let something go? No. It's like an oozing wound or something. It's like, oh, that's gross. Okay. So he just read Leviticus. That was it. Didn't explain it. Didn't talk about it. And we prayed. And you might say, well, you shouldn't be reading the Bible without explaining it. Why not? You know, just read it. And that's what they did. It was important to them. I know it was important to them. Whatever my grandparents believed or did not believe, I know that they believed what in the Bible. I know they believed in church. I know they believed in Christ. Because that's what they did. That's where they were. That's how they did it. And so you do that with your parents. You do it with your children. You do it with your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. Um, and pray with them and for them every day. With them, for them. Not just at meals um, not just at bedtime, but it needs to be a, a time of family worship where you can try to just get your family together. Come on. <laughs> Five minutes, three minutes, whatever you can get. You know, we're going to read the Bible. One verse, whatever. And then we're going to pray. The neatest thing is have your children into a habit of praying and saying, yeah, how are we going to pray for today? And then to hear your children go through a litany of family members that they're praying for. Just praying. Just praying. And you'd be amazed how long that can take sometimes. So you're teaching your family to pray. And husbands, this is the primary responsibility is that you be that. And if you don't have children, um, it's with your wife. If, you, if you're not married, then you do that alone with yourself. And you, you pray for God to, to bless all that. Or that people would know that you have... Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, I think it was her, she wrote a book called Spiritual Mothering. So that... Um, you know, women, and this is from the Bible, um, you're spiritual mothers to other women to you, too. You know, so even if you don't have children, um, you become spiritual parents to the younger 
men and women in a church. So that's an important thing to be doing too. Um, and the importance of attending worship with them um, weekly, as often as you can. Um, um, that it, it, It's something that you carve out um, with intentionality, not letting anything get in there that doesn't have to get in there. And when something does get in there, and I mean, you need vacations. You need to be able to take off and take your family somewhere. And God bless you if you're able to do that and go do something. But when you're away, find a church. Yeah? And just say, because your, your, your kids will see it. And while we're going to church, we're going to make space as a pastor. I mean, there's been times when we've been on vacation and I hadn't gone to church because so I felt like, well, I'm on vacation. And, you know, shame on me for not doing it. I regret those times. But more often than not, we try to go to church somewhere, you know. And it's a thing you, you know, you model it. It's not something you just take a vacation from because it's important. But I don't think we understand the importance of it. I think we think it's just something you do. Then You don't have to do it. And then you have to make the gospel and the church the priority of your life. And that's what I'm talking about. It's the priority. It's not a priority. It's the highest priority in your life. The only thing that's going to make a difference after you die is what you did with Christ. That is it. Don't take a U-Haul to the graveyard. If you do, other people are going to auction it off and have all your stuff. We have a yard sale coming up. But that's the most important thing. I mean, one of the most humbling things I ever heard, and somebody told their child this, their adult child who was living with them at the time that was going through struggles and they told him if you're going to be living with me you're going to have to go to church with me and then they were doing things that were wrong and it was difficult on on the the parents and the mother told the child I knew she said it because she'd gotten this kind of thing from me and I felt responsible for it and I had to struggle with it and I thought about it and I was like man this is right though this is I don't know if I could even do it but she said to her kid I love Jesus more than I love you you need to know that and that's good for you. And I was like, man, you say that to your children? Because if you can't, you got little idols living with you. Because you might as well look at Jesus and say, I love my children more than I love you. And there's a lot of us that do. It's hard not to. Because there's a great love that parents have for children. That you can't know unless you have children. But it's a way that we understand a little bit about how God feels about us. So we had to make sure that that's a priority. And I don't say this to guilt you. I say this because I think I'm supposed to say this. So when many, when um, a family, um, most Christian families were first, when you move somewhere, one of the first things that people ask is like, where are we going to live? You know, you get a job, St. Louis. Then you go and you're like, Um, where are we going to live? What's one of the first things you want to know? School system. To have a good school system. That shouldn't be the first question. It should be, where's a good church? Am I going to be close enough to a church? It's very wrong-headed to think about school system being the first thing we think about. God has placed and created and instituted three institutions in the world 
for the promotion of our good and for the restraint of evil. He's given us three institutions. And he has said, these three things are things that I have placed in the world to restrain evil, to promote good, to bring the kingdom about, and to have families to grow. And the first one, this is not in particularly order of importance, but the first one is government. Romans 13, 4. The ruling authorities are to be ministers or servants of God for the good. It's the role of government, servants of God. God has instituted governance for the good. The restraint of evil, the promotion of good. That's what a government is supposed to be doing. When a government begins to promote things that are evil, we must cast off the restraint of that government and be like Daniel and say, I will not obey. Okay? If our government says we should be able to allow people to own black people as slaves, we have to stand up and say, my God, man... We need an abolition movement. William Wilberforce in England stood up with the gospel and said, this is wrong. Many southerners in the church stood up and said, I got biblical justification for owning slaves. You know how hard it would be to stand up in a church and preach against that when the whole culture is ready to string you up with them and hang you on a tree? You got to be willing to. You got to be willing to. Would you vote for a party that said, we believe that people ought to be able to have black people as slaves? Would you ever be in favor of a political party that had as part of their platform? You put every one of the party candidates on the platform and you say, are you in favor of enslaving black people or at least allowing whoever chooses to to own black people as slaves? Would you ever be a member of that party or ever vote for one of those people? God forbid. And yet we have a party that gets up and says we can kill babies all the way up to the point of birth. But that's okay because they're good on education or the economy. It's sad. And I'm not saying you got to be Republican. I'm not saying you got to be Democrat. I'm just saying you got to speak up against that. God forbid a leader of this country stand up and say that's good and we vote for them. Or that homosexuality is good and and we need to have men marrying men and we vote for them. You're not going to be popular. You're not going to be politically correct. You might not grow a church. You might get persecuted. You might have people not like you. You might have this. You might have that. But my God, we're going to be under judgment. And we already are. The government. Second is the church for the gathering and perfecting of the saints. The proclamation of the word of God. The light of the world, the salt of the world, the church instituted by Christ himself. The church of Christ being able to speak to the government, be able to speak to the people. We have a a country in which people have a free will decision whether or not to vote, who to vote for. I mean, you aren't given a whole lot of choice. We have a two-party system that pretty much controls a lot of things, and and neither one of them is like who we would choose. Um, So you've got to decide for yourself, vote, not to vote. I'm not going to stand here and say you have to vote. The Christians don't have to vote. Is it wise to? Probably. Um, but you will stand before God with your ballot in your hand and answer for the decisions you make. You will have to answer for these things. And the third institution is the household. Families. Honor your parents. Children, respect your parents. 
Parents, don't drive your children to exasperation. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Respect one another. Families, the household. One of the three institutions God has placed in this world for the promotion of the good, to bring his kingdom about. And I want you to note this. Don't take this the wrong way, but you have to know it because you have to internalize these things and think of them as Christians. But the school system is not a biblical institution. Okay? I'm not saying it's evil, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's not one of the three institutions. Okay? That's important, and I challenge you to find it in here for me. Okay? The government, which is now educating our children, be careful with that, because whose responsibility is the education of our children? Household. Who's responsible for helping households grow? Church. Who's responsible for making sure we can do that without interference from the government? Government in our country. Okay? Put your children in a school system. It's not sinful. But you've got to make sure that you're not allowing the school system, the government, to do what the household's supposed to do. That's tricky. It can be done. And just because you put your children in a a Christian school doesn't mean that you're doing it. Christian school's not one of the institutions either. Sunday school's not to replace the family. Wednesday nights doesn't replace the family. If you can only make it to church one time a week, this is the time to be here. This is the most important time of of the week. This is where we get it, and we take it out from there. So again, I'm not speaking against the public school system. I'm not speaking against Christian schools or homeschooling or any of these things. It is the responsibility of the household, of the family, for the education of their children. Beware of our government. I say this prophetically from the pulpit. The more the government gets more and more secular and continues to degenerate, that's who's educating your children. He who controls the education system controls the future. We used to be taught this when I was in school, and it was called political socialization. And you had to be careful of it, because who is socializing your children? And you think, well, I'm homeschooling mine, eight years old. That's when they're being introduced to pornography. The world is here. Satan is alive and well. He is attacking. And the only thing that we have against it is the armor of God. And if your armor is weak, then you're just setting yourself up for failure. But I think our problem is we don't care about these things a whole lot. We're going to make sure that we don't have the, that having the appearance of godliness, denying its power, because we have to remember is, that should have been our next. Those kings, that's us. We're the ones that should have our necks down. We're the ones that should be um, killed. There are none who are good. All have sinned. Repentance begins with recognizing it should be us, that we are the man, that we are the ones who deserve this, that Jesus saved me when yet a sinner. We are the ones who should have been killed. We are the ones that should have been hung on the tree. Deuteronomy 21, 22, 23, Cursed is he who is hanged on a tree. Jesus instead places his neck beneath the feet of God and is hung on a tree and it dies on the tree. Satan thought he had Jesus right where he wanted, under his feet. And then Christ becomes a curse for us. Jesus is raised from the tomb. His stones rolled away. Apparently, you could walk around when Joshua was written, find that tomb with those kings, stones still there. You go to find Jesus' tomb, there's no stone there, there's no Jesus there, there's no dust there, there's no bones, there's no Jesus, he's risen. And that's 
while we're risen, that's what the church proclaims. That's the influence we have as people are changed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to change their households, to change the, to be changed by the church, to influence the church, and then to make, if, if you have a government that's out of control and it's fascistic and you can't do anything, you don't have a vote, you don't have anything, you got to figure out how you live. You got to figure out how you live. But that's not where we are. And we can praise God for it. But we are the church. We're to be salt. We're to be light. And Romans 16, 20 says something amazing. That the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. So he's going to be under our feet. Jesus Christ uses his church to crush Satan. We need to be about crushing Satan under our feet. Starts with your household. Be sure, as for me and my house, we're serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. I'm not serving my children. I'm not serving my wife. I'm not serving my husband. I'm serving the Lord and under the Lordship of Christ, I then react in the proper ways to, in all of these relationships in the way the Holy Spirit wants me to. And that's what we have to figure out. And the only thing that stops Israel, if you read 29 through the end, it's repeated. He defeats Lachish. He defeats Eglon. He defeats these countries, one after the other. Joshua and Israel going forward and defeating, 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 and winning the land and making this progress. And the only thing that stops them is sin, unbelief, and worshiping foreign gods. That's it. So these final things down in closing. Why is the church so weak? And these are just Things I'd put. You can add your own list, but I think this is what it has to do with. We have to ask first, have we been lulled to sleep? Are we content to watch the world burn as long as our house seems okay? Are we truly converted? Are we praying and praying together? Do we believe the power of the gospel to transform us? Do we trust God with our obedience? Are we mere critiquers? Rather than more than conquerors? Are we afraid? Are we ignorant? Are we divided? Do we stand for truth? Have we lost our first love? Are we too worldly? Do we fear holiness? Do we have other gods in God's face? Where is your first love? Where is your treasure? Because there your heart will be. You cannot serve two masters. And I wrote in a moment of exuberance and excitement and feeling as if I was full of the Spirit. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I hope you can say that too, that we will all serve the Lord. So let it be said of all God's people. Yes, amen. Let's pray. Father God, I am convicted by this. I have said things that I think some people hear and they won't like. Um, I believe it's all truth though. I believe it's your truth and not my truth. Um, Myself can get in these things. I don't want to get in these things. I don't, I don't want to meddle with people. I want people to like me. I want people to like this church. I want to grow this church. I don't want to drive people away from this church. But God, I want people to be so enamored by you. I want people to love you. I want people to know you. I want us to be faithful to you. I want us to see your word as real and truthful. I want us to live as different in the world. I want us to really be lights, to really be salt. I want us to, to love and hunger and thirst for righteousness, for faith, to grow deeper and deeper. I want to be, I want to be be a type of pastor that preaches truth and it's not just as I see it but truth is truth and that your Holy Spirit guides these things that, that you continue to show us more and more your truth Lord that we would love our families that we'd, we'd be here 
that we'd find ways to make this important, Lord, that, that we're in singing and praying together and loving together and encouraging one another all the more as we see today approaching, Lord, and sitting all together, young and old, under the preached word of God. And then we go home and say to our little ones, what in the world was all that about? And we say, let me tell you what he's talking about. And how do you think that applies to us? So Lord, thank you for parents who struggle with little kids in the pews. I thank you for parents who pray with their children at home. I thank you for parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who are worried and concerned about what's happening. And that they're praying, that they're on their knees, and they're trying to show the way to Christ faithfully. Help us all to do that. We all fail. So we thank you for the grace is not dependent on us. It's dependent on you. So we thank you for this. We're going to do poorly at this. Continue to help us do better. And thank you for the grace that allows us to really make a mess of things and still see your glorious providence worked out in the world. Keep us faithful. Make us love you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.